Good morning again, everybody. And uh, I am really thankful that we can take some time this morning to just open up God's word and talk about what it means for our lives and how it points us to Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 44? And we're going to pick it up right where we left off a couple weeks ago. We're going to pick it up in verse 6 and work our way down to verse 23 this morning. So that's our, that's our section. And uh, I, I'm just so grateful that, that even though we can't be together, and there's, there's a lot of sadness in that for me, um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm grateful that we can still uh, be together in this way and still open up the Bible together. So would you go ahead and turn to Isaiah 44, and I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. So let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your grace to us today. We pray that you would meet us right here, right where we are, that you would speak uh, the words we need for our hearts today. Would you use your word in our lives? And we pray that this time would be fruitful for us as followers of Jesus. And we pray that you would meet us right where we are. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So <clears throat> Isaiah 44, verse 6 through 23. Um, if, if you're uh, unfamiliar or, uh, or can't remember from a few weeks ago where we are in this book, um, we're at a, in a section where God has just told Isaiah and the people of Israel that they're going to have a tragic um, season in front of them. That the, that the Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to conquer them. They're going to capture them. They're going to haul them off out of their land. And, um, and there's just going to be so much devastation. And they really did receive the worst news of their lives in that moment. And, and so what is happening now in the book is really important and precious. And that is that God is speaking words of comfort to his people. He is, he's told them the hard truth, but he's going to now remind them of, their, of who they are, uh, of, of his plans, of his purposes. And he's going to remind them that this trial is not ultimately going to define them and that it's not ultimately going to destroy them. But that God is actually at work in the midst of their trials. And I, I don't know that there's a better season for us to be walking through this part of Isaiah than the season we're walking in right now. It's, it's this divine intentionality of God to, to use this text for us right now. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, we didn't plan this. Obviously, nobody planned for any of this to happen. Um, but we know that God is using his word in our lives right here and now. So we need to be reminded of the same things. Uh, we didn't receive the same kind of news that they received, but we are in a season of uncertainty and a season of, of strain and trials and difficulties. 
Some of you maybe have lost work. Some of you maybe are just getting stir-crazy at home. Some of your, your kids may be starting to struggle a bit with school in this new format. And, you know, there, there are all kinds of things that we're going through right now. And we need the reminder that they needed, that God is with us, that he's for us in Christ, that, that he has a plan in all the things that we go through, and that God is actually at work in human history. And so we need those reminders, and I'm grateful for them. I hope you are too. So let's dive into Isaiah 44, verse 6. Uh, the heart of this passage is this. Um, th- these verses, verse 6 through 23, are, are going to show us something that we've, that we've heard it, from Isaiah before, but we will need to hear again. And it's this, that God redeems us for his glory and our joy, but, here's the key, to experience that redemption, we have to first see the absurdity of placing our trust in other things. And so to do that, Isaiah is going to really talk a lot again about idolatry. And we may wonder, why does he talk about idols so much? I mean, why is he always bringing up these, these things. Well, obviously, um, it was a major problem in his culture, right? Where people would form and, and create these gods for themselves. But it goes beyond just the cultural issues in Isaiah's day. It, idolatry really is the problem. It's the problem for them, and it was the problem for us. Idolatry is putting our trust in something that we're substituting God with, uh, that we are using to replace God. We're, we're putting a heart-level trust in something else. And so God is going to speak here through Isaiah's words, and he's going to remind us that if we want to experience the, the, the full purpose and redemption of Christ, we, we have to recognize how absurd it is for us to trust in other things. And, and um, so that's where we're going to go this morning. Let's begin looking at verse 6 through 8, because here God is going to set, the, set the, uh, the, the framework or lay the foundation for everything else in the passage. Here is what he says. He says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. You hear what he's saying? Of course, it's clear. It's as clear as day. You can't get any clearer than this that God is the eternal God and he's the only God that truly exists. Every other God or every other thing that we try to replace him with are are substitutes. They are are poor substitutes. They They are ineffectual. They are actually a bunch of fake gods. He says that I am your king. I am your redeemer. Those that phrase, that, that word rather, redeemer, is a, a word that means that he's our, 
He's the one who purchases us for himself. He purchases our freedom and gives us a new purpose. He, it, it's, his, it's a reference to salvation. That Christ is our redeemer is, is a way of saying that he is the one who purchases us from, from sin. And so here he is. He's reminding us again of his, who he is. He's our king. He's our redeemer. And, and he has the credentials that we need to trust in him. He is the first and he is the last. That's a way of saying that he's the eternal God. He existed before anything else existed. No one created him. He always was. And that's always the, the thing, right? When, when you're a kid, especially and probably even now as adults, we, we wonder, how did God just always exist? It's like, it's something that our brains just have a really hard time computing. Uh, and it's one of the first things that a kid will ask about these, these doctrines. Well, God made everything, but who made God? And the answer, the right answer, the true answer is no one made God. God just is. And then, you know, their little minds just explode and, and they, can't, they can't wrap their heads around it. And neither can we, if we're honest. But that's what God is. He is the first and he is the last. He just is. He will always be. He always has been. And besides him, there is no God. Then he goes on to say this, verse 7. He asks this question, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. He's, he's actually challenging us here. He's putting a challenge in front of us and he's saying, try to prove me wrong. Try to prove that there is another God that can rival me. Try to prove that, that I am not the first and the last. And of course, we can't do that, right? We would, whenever we attempt to do that, we fail at that. And, and so we are, we're always going to fail to prove him wrong about this. He but he, he's willing to let us try. And we've tried in a hundred different ways. Uh, you and I have tried in a hundred different ways or more to replace God with something else. And every time it fails. We, we do not have any other gods but the God of the Bible. And then he says this in verse 8. He says, fear not. So even when we fail to prove him wrong, we have nothing to fear. And he says, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. There is no God besides me. There is no rock. I know not any. He says, listen, you guys can try as hard as you can to replace me or find substitutes for me or, or to just try to prove that I am not who I am. But when you fail at that, I'm right here for you. You don't need to be afraid. You, you don't need to be concerned. I've, I'm right here. I'm your rock. I'm your defense. I'm your protection. I'm, I'm your God. 
There is no God besides me, he says. And so we have to lean on him. Now, of course, that sets the, the, the foundation for all the things that we're going to see in the next section. And the majority of this passage is actually uh, God making a mockery of idolatry. And he's going to just go through this, this long section, this number of paragraphs, just to prove to you how foolish it really is to try to substitute God for something that we've created ourselves. To try to replace him with something else is absurd, it's reckless, and it will ultimately leave us empty. And so let's just read, it's actually verse 9 through 20, so the vast majority of the passage. And, and there's a lot here, so we'll, we'll read it, and, um, and we'll talk about it a little bit as we go through. Let's start in verse 9. It says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. Those first couple of verses uh, are helping us to understand something really vital. Um, It says, those who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. What God is saying to you and me today is this, that we can try to create for ourselves substitutes for God, but ultimately that's an attempt to make ourselves God. And and when we try to make ourselves God, we are proven to be nothing. We, We can't actually do this effectively. And the things that we try to create to replace God ultimately don't bring us profit. They don't bring us delight. If you think about this, it's really, it's really true. When, whenever you find something that you think is going to bring you, you know, this, this great happiness, um, you get bored of it pretty quickly, don't you? Like, money doesn't really make us happy for very long. Um, toys that we may buy with that money does not make us happy for very long. That dream house that we might own is pretty soon uh, a big list of projects for us to complete. Uh, th- those cars that we drive are going to depreciate the second we take it off the lot. I mean, you go on and on and on and the things are just, it's just true. The things that we think will bring us joy and delight really don't live up to what they promise. So God is telling us this, that it is absurd for us to try to replace him with 
temporary things that do not satisfy because those things will not profit in the end. Look down at verse 12 uh, and following. It says this, The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire over The half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. (laughs) You guys see how absolutely ridiculous this is that's the point so so let's let's unpack what we just read because god is doing something really really awesome here he's making such a ridicule of these people that make idols notice what he says he he first talks about the ironsmith so this would be the person in that culture at that point in time who would fashion an idol out of some sort of form of metal, whether it be gold or silver or or iron or whatever it is, right? Uh, This is a person who has great skill and knows how to use his tools well, and he's sculpting out this god. But notice what happens. It says at the end of verse 12, he becomes hungry and his strength fails, He drinks no water and is faint. God is saying, listen, even this ironsmith who's creating this God out of metal is no God. Because if that guy who's working on that idol forgets to eat lunch or forgets to take a drink, guess what happens? That, That dude's strength is completely sucked out of him. He's a weak and pathetic man. And, and God is saying, and that's the guy who's going to create a God that can rescue you? The guy who can't even skip a meal or forget to drink some water, and now he's just worthless and, and a waste of space and, and completely incapable? Like, he's just pointing out the absurdity of that guy thinking that he could create a God. Then, then he talks about the other guy, the other guy is the woodworker. And, and he's, this, this is where it even gets more crazy. 
right? He talks about the carpenter, how he stretches out a line, he marks it with a pencil, he, he shapes it with a plane, he marks it with a compass. He's doing all the carpentry work that he needs to do to make this, this god. He shapes it in fig, into the figure of a man. But then notice this, right? That guy can take the wood and manipulate it and form it into the shape of a man or an animal or whatever that he wants to worship. But then look at this. Verse 14, it says he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets them grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. God is saying, first of all, that idol was made out of something that that man did not make. That man didn't create the trees. God created the trees. God put the trees there. God put the cypress and the oak in their forests. God did that. That man did nothing to make that tree grow. Maybe he planted the seed, but ultimately does that man make that tree grow? No. The rain that falls from heaven that God sends and the sun that shines on the earth is what makes that tree grow. God created that tree. And so it is absurd to think that we can make a God out of something that God created. But that's what we do. He then talks about how this tree, this is where it gets really humorous actually, he says, this, then this tree becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire um, and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it, half of this tree, he burns. It says, um, he burns in the fire in verse 16. Over the half, he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. And he warms himself. So he cuts down this tree, but he doesn't need the whole tree to make his God. So what's he going to do with the rest of it? He, he does with it what we should do with trees. Right? He, he uses it. He uses the resources God has given to provide for himself. He warms himself. He heats his home. Some of you may heat your home that way. You know, cut down trees and we have fires and we cook food over those fires. He bakes his bread. That's a good thing. He, he roasts his meat. That's a really good thing. Commend the dude for that, right? We, 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 we are, that's all good. But then, but then this is the ridiculous part. Then it's the ridiculous part in verse 17. And the rest of the wood he uses to make a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. <laughs> he prays to it, saying, deliver me for you are my god. You see how, how, Honestly, stupid this is. Like, you, you, you are taking a tree that you did not create. You want to make a god out of it. But, you know, you don't need the whole tree for that. So 
you use the rest of the wood, the same wood from the same tree that you're creating a God, you're also using to heat your house and cook your food and keep yourself warm. And, and God's just like going, you don't, you don't see that? You don't see how dumb that is? Like you don't, you don't see how ridiculous that, that is? It's absurd to think that we can take something that God himself made, like a tree, or like the metal that the ironsmith uses and form those things into something that we can then call our God? It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. And God's pointing that out. Verse 18 through 20, let's read the rest. It says, They, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on the coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And I shall make the rest into an abomination. (laughs) Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? God is saying this, that the only reason that somebody could be so foolish as to think that they could take a tree and make a God out of it and then use the rest of the tree to cook their food and heat their home the only reason someone could be that like delusional and think, oh yeah, this is a God, sure. I know that I just burned half of what I, what I cut down for all these other things, but yeah, this half is a God. Like the only reason he says that somebody can be that ridiculous is this in verse 20. He has a deluded heart and that heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself. You know, as people who trust in Jesus, we have, we've had our hearts renewed. We have, we have had our eyes and ears and minds open to understand the gospel. Christ has done that work to save us. And, and so it's easy for us to look around the world around us and go, man, Why does my neighbor care so much about those things? Like, doesn't he realize that that's not going to satisfy them? Or, or man, why does my coworker constantly do this or that or the other thing? We we look at these people and we think, man, they're just, they're so, they're so foolish. They're, they're, they're pursuing things that are just so off base. And, you know, the reason for that is because their hearts have not been open to the gospel. That's why they need us to share the gospel with them so that they could see clearly. All of us were once in that same spot. We all are born with a deluded heart that's led us astray. And it's not until the gospel awakens that heart that we start to see that we cannot deliver ourselves and so we need a savior outside of ourselves. We need a rescuer who is outside of us 
to come and free us from all of that delusional belief. You might think for a moment here, I don't know, but you might be thinking, well, yeah, that was a problem for those people. You know, they were making things out of wood. I don't worship stones or metalworks or wood or whatever. And that may be true. But I've been trying to make the point that it's not about the form that gods take. It's about the heart that pursues things. And when you, when you look at the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, he talks about his own journey, <clears throat> excuse me, his own journey to, to Jesus. And he, here's what he says, starting in verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So what Paul's saying here is this, that we worship Jesus and we don't put any confidence in our own ability to make a God that will satisfy us. We don't put any confidence in the flesh. We don't put any confidence in ourselves. We put it all in Jesus. And, but then he says this. This is really insightful for, our, for, for us here. Verse 4, it says, Though I myself, Paul's writing, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel on the, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his, in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. What's Paul saying? Paul, Paul is saying, in, in essence, that whatever form our idolatry takes... We're all idolaters when we trust in ourselves. And the form of idolatry that the Apostle Paul had was different than the kind of idolatry Isaiah's talking about. But it's still idolatry. It's still putting confidence in the flesh. And he just basically goes through this list of things that he used to trust in. He trusted in his privileged birth. He was born in the tribe of Benjamin. He was born uh, 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 under this amazing uh, tradition. He, he's, he, he's boasting, or he had been boasting in his education. He was a Pharisee. To get it to be a Pharisee, you're, 
You're no slouch in the classroom. He was a brilliant man. He worked hard, but he believed that his education could save him. He, he boasted in his religious zeal. He, he was so zealous for his beliefs that he persecuted the church. He boasted in his personal righteousness under the law, his ability to, to follow the rules. And at the end of the day, when he meets Jesus, what he realizes is that all of those things, his birth, his education, his zeal, his righteousness, it's all garbage. He calls it rubbish. It's all garbage compared to knowing Jesus Christ. That's that's what we got to hear today. It's that just as absurd as it is to make a piece of wood into a god and use the leftover wood to cook your meat, as absurd as that is, it is equally absurd for us to trust in our own accomplishments or to trust in our position or to trust in our education or to trust in where we were born. All of that is absurd compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Compared to knowing Jesus Christ. So, what's, the, what's our response in all of this? Let's go back to Isaiah 44 and the last three verses we want to look at give us what our response to God as God ought to be. There's three things. And they're all going to start with R because, you know, we got to do the alliteration thing. Okay. But let's, let's look at this. Verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel... For you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. The first thing we do in response to who God is, is we remember. We remember some very important things. We remember that God created us. Just as God created those trees of the forest that were being formed into God's, God created you and me. He put us where we live. He placed us in the family in which we were born into. He has a purpose for where we live and who we were born to and and what our circumstances are and what jobs we have. God is the one who does that. Acts chapter 17, Paul tells us that God is the one who, who forms and sets the boundaries of our dwelling place, that he's the one who determines where we live and how long we live. He's the creator of us all. We need to remember that, that he created us, he put us where we are, and he did so for a purpose. We also need to remember that because God made you, and because God puts you where you are, he has not and will not forget you. He knows your name. He knows who you are. And he will not forget you. Remember. Remember, that's first. 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. 
and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. The second response we need to have to our God as God is to return. We're called to remember who he is and that he's created us and that he's with us. But we're also called to return to him. We're called to return to the one who removes all of our sins by the death of Jesus. He is the one who gives to us the righteousness that we have. And we need to stop trusting in ourselves and return to him. We need to identify the ways in which we've tried to replace him and and run away from those things and back to him. We need to return to our king, the one who removes all of your transgressions through Jesus. The one who, he says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. I have removed your sins like a mist. It's like when you drive past the the farm fields outside of Antigo and you've all seen this at some point early in the morning it can just be blanketed with fog just fog and you can't see hardly in front of your face and and that that is what God says our our sins were in, in our lives they just covered our lives like a like a fog but just as the fog in the morning is is uh, just brought away by the, by the rising sun, just completely dissipated by the sun. There's the word. I couldn't, I couldn't bring it out for a second. Um, when it's just dissipated by the, by the morning sun, coming in, warming the earth, so God's grace brings about the removal of our sin. It takes it away like a morning mist removed by the sun. So return to him. Return to him. Remember that God has made you and return to him because he has saved you. And then third, verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains. O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. So this third thing, we could say the third response uh, is to sing. But that doesn't start with an R. So I'm going to go with rejoice. We're called to remember. We're called to return. And we're called to rejoice. Why are we called to rejoice? Because the Lord has done it. (laughs) The Lord has accomplished the work. The finished work of Jesus Christ makes us rejoice and sing and lift our voices in praise and, and to find our significance in him. All of these things are, are what we are to, to respond with this morning as we have seen God as God, the one who is the only God, the one who has existed forever and always, the the one who is 
truly and completely for us and accomplishing all the work of redemption that we could never accomplish for ourselves. What an amazing God we have. Let's remember him today. Let's return to him today. And let's rejoice in him today. I I hope that this uh, has been helpful to you. And in just a moment, we're going to turn back to our time in singing as we conclude our service today. And I want to encourage you to stand and sing with us and to rejoice in the finished work of Jesus Christ for all of us as we've trusted in him. And that's just a glorious thing. But let me pray for us and then we'll go into our time of singing. Father, we are so thankful that you are God, that you are the only God, the one who has saved us and redeemed us and purchased us for yourself. We pray that that truth would just overflow in our hearts in joy today and that we would return to you, that we would turn away from our idols and that we would come to you and only you for our hope and joy and salvation. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.